does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Does it come to the Jew only or does this blessedness that God is bringing come to the Gentile as well? And the blessedness that he's speaking about is the blessedness of having God impute through faith a righteousness to us. A blessedness that comes that brings to us forgiveness for our lawless deeds and covers our sins and God doesn't impute sin to us. He doesn't account our sins against us, but he accounts righteousness to us instead through faith. Again, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of righteousness, of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abram had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to a seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, and that could be translated a multitude of nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, before your word, uh, grant us a deeper and further instruction. Take to us the things that Paul is saying, the things that are motivating and generating by your spirit these words to those he is writing to. By the same spirit, O oh God, uh, show us a way to understand them and apply them in our own responses to you that we might be faithful to all you instruct us in and teach us in. And Lord, in these things, exalt the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation before our eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you take your Bible and you look in the back of your Bibles or most of your Bibles, you'll see that there are some maps there. There will be at least one map and sometimes as many as two or three maps that are titled The Missionary Journeys of Paul. And there you'll see they list usually three or four missionary journeys. The last missionary journey would be the last journey that Paul took on his way to Rome. And these are the four missionary journeys of Paul that are recorded in the book of Acts. Many scholars think there's a fifth journey that Paul took that's not recorded in the New Testament. And that is that Paul went on from there and eventually he went to Spain and some even suggest he went as far as to Great Britain. So you look at those maps, you can draw one thing from them, and it was this. Paul was a missionary. Paul was somebody 
who went out to take the gospel to those who had never known and never heard. Paul had been commanded of the Lord Jesus to take this gospel to those nations beyond the nation of Israel, and he was obedient to that command. He makes that quite clear in the testimonies that he gives that the Lord explained to him at the moment of his conversion that God was going to use him to bring the gospel to the nations, and Paul responds to that call of God, and he devotes his life to taking that gospel to people throughout the known world. Now, this wasn't the normal pattern for a Jew. It particularly would not have been the normal pattern for a Jew that had been raised in the Pharisaic tradition and taught by one of the greatest Pharisaical teachers of all, a man by the name of Gamaliel, and that's Paul. Jews had surrounded their life with customs and behaviors and patterns of behavior that would shield themselves off from the defilement of what they considered to be the Gentile race. Even as they went to them and tried to bring their message to them, they brought it to them from a distance. Paul lives among them and goes to them and is found with them. And Paul gives his life to bringing the gospel to these Gentiles. And now Paul is writing to the people of Rome and he's trying to explain, in a sense, this motivation. He's trying to instill in the church that he's writing to this same passion and this same interest. He knows within the church there are those that are coming out of Judaism and the whole mindset in which they segregate themselves from the Gentile population and he's stirring them up as well to lay hold of this call and this command of God to be missionaries. And by the way, this attitude that was in the Jewish Christian still creeps into the life of every church. This kind of insular attitude in which we look to ourselves and we try to hone ourselves and we think of ourselves and we are a separate people but we think the separation is to be separate. Instead, the separation is to be sent. He separates us out to send us to those in need of the gospel. And we get confused with that and we focus on the separation side of it. So Paul is writing to correct this spirit and this attitude. Paul is writing to put an argument before Jewish believers, possibly, and even those who are peering in and looking from the outside. He's trying to explain to them the gospel in such a way that they would feel the impulse and the design of God to go to all the nations. Paul now acknowledges something that has been developed in the mindset of the Jews. The Jews have added to their idea of how they are saved. And the Jews take away the idea that they're saved merely by faith. And they find the assurance of their salvation instead in their lineage from Abraham just that they come from Abraham. And also, they find some sense of their assurance or special standing before God in the lineage that came from the people of Israel that were brought out of bondage and came before Mount Sinai and received the law. And that they were the recipients of God's great law. And as such, they had a kind of a founder's mentality. Being the natural heirs and the natural children born from Abraham and born of those people who gathered later around Mount Sinai and received the law, they were the people of the law. And this, in their mindset, gave them an attitude that this, in a sense, gave them that assured position of salvation before God. They added that to their faith. In fact, that kind of became the point of their faith. If you came and you challenged a Jew in their need for salvation to yield themselves completely to the truth, they would say what they said to John the Baptist when he was calling the people of Israel to repent. We're the children of Israel. We're the children of Abraham. And John the Baptist said, don't say that we're the children of Abraham when I call you to repent because God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. 
But that was their idea. That was their mindset. They said the same thing to the Lord Jesus when he told them that they would know the truth himself and he would set them free. And they say, how can you say we would know the truth and be set free? We've never been in bondage to anyone. We're the children of Abraham. They say it while they're under bondage of Roman rule. But they have this idea that somehow their position, their lineage gives them special favor and standing with God and that's the basis of their assurance. Not only that, they added to that this idea that they were the people who gave themselves to that law that was pronounced on Mount Sinai. They, in a sense, made it their mission to understand and apply those laws and follow them and to follow into the implications of that law that was given, defined in every minute way how they might be faithful to that law. And so they were people of the law in the sense that they were given to that law to obey that law. A law, by the way, the Gentiles hadn't even heard. The Gentiles didn't even know. They knew it. They had heard it. They had learned it. They had given themselves to study it and obey it and follow it. And it's that diligence that they gave and that focus as a nation they gave to the law that made them feel that they were sure of their salvation as well. And so they added that, you might say, to the reference point of which they felt that they were saved and they were good with God. At the same time, it distinguished them from all the other nations. They're not the heirs, and they're not of the lineage of Abraham, and they don't come from the people who stood before Mount Sinai, and they haven't given themselves the observance of all the law and its commandments. Then added to that, they had an extra amount of assurance because they had followed the prescribed rituals of their religion. And take all those rituals that they followed, their rituals of cleanliness and washing their hands, they would ultimately bring it back to that founding ritual in their mind, which was the ritual of circumcision. And they were the circumcised, and the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. And that was the basis of their confidence that they were the people of God and that they had salvation. And all these things, the Jews held on to this identity and this sense of salvation and these things, by holding on to these things, the outcome of that was they were denying the message of salvation to all those outside. They were denying it to those who were not the natural heirs of Abraham. They were denying it in a large sense to those who had not even heard the law, did not know the law, and didn't know all the different prescriptions they were giving from the law. And they were denying it from those individuals that had not received and given themselves the rituals of Judaism and been circumcised. They were adding to their faith these things so that faith wasn't faith at all. There wasn't a salvation by faith at all. Their salvation was essentially in these things. Maybe they wouldn't say that. Maybe they would say it was just faith in God and believing in God and they could proclaim that message and go out and proclaim the message and preach God to the nations. But their practice was saying, their practice, and it was stealing away in their hearts as well. And Paul is wanting to open up the gospel to all and he knows the message that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone and God's provision alone and God keeping his promise to bless alone that in that message of salvation by faith it was a message that could go to all people regardless of their lineage regardless of what they knew of the law regardless of whatever rituals and, and religious practices they had in their past they could come into salvation. And Paul wants to keep it that way. He wants to keep the door open. He wants to project the church and the Christians out with that message and not to be restrained by these ideas that may be pegged in the back of their minds. And so Paul goes to the very one that they start their argument with, Abraham, and he shows that God, when God brought faith to Abraham, and when God, through Abraham's faith, declared him righteous, it was at a time prior to that, Abraham wasn't righteous. 
It was in the moment that he received the promises of God and believed in God, as we said the last time I spoke on this subject, the one thing that God wants more than anything else from any individual is to be believed. And it was when Abraham believed God and the promises of God that we read that at that moment God imputed to him righteousness. It was accounted to him as righteousness just through his faith. He takes us back, Paul does, to that moment in time when that took place. And he shows us how Abraham had been promised that he would be blessed, that a great nation would rise from him, that he would bless that nation, and that through him he would bless all the nations or families of the earth. And it's in Genesis chapter 15. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham has a question. He doesn't understand how God is going to make a great nation of him because he has no natural heirs. He's an old man and his wife is old and they're barren. And how is it possible? Is God, are, are you going to somehow send this promise that you've given to me and now, and now direct it through one of my servants and one of my slaves or one of those who was born in my household that's not my own child? God says no. And he has Abraham go out outside of his tent and he has Abraham look up into the stars. He says, look up into the stars. As many as those stars are, so will be your children. And then out of that, God promises him that he's not only going to bless him and make from him one nation, but he's going to make from him a multitude of nations. And now Paul is telling us at this moment that what God was promising to Abraham and what Abraham received in that promise, I mean, this is in verse 17, was not merely that he was going to have from his natural descendants not only the Israelites and also the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, and all the different people who might trace a natural heritage from him, but that Abraham was going to be the father of a multitude of nations through his faith in God. If he would just believe God and trust God, God would account him as being righteous and then through that faith, that trust that God would keep his promises, that God would let that faith go out and go out to all the nations and that there would be whole nations, whole new nations that would be renewed and made new, become, in a sense, heirs, spiritual heirs of Abraham. And so in that way, Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. Think about it. When we go and we share the gospel with an individual, and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. And in a sense, what God is promising to Abraham and what is true is it's not simply that individuals become new creatures, but as in each nation, these new creations, these new regenerated individuals rise up from nation to nation, they begin to comprise a new nation. A nation that has been regenerate and made new. And, and one day the promise is that before the throne of Jesus Christ, people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation will bow and worship before him. New creations, new created nations, nations of faith that will rise and kind of prosper and grow and expand out of the faith of Abraham. What we said last time we spoke on this is, see the expansive nature of your faith. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust him and you live for him and seek to honor him and you take his promises by faith, it doesn't end with you. It opens up the prospect of a life that reverberates out. It reverberates out to the stars and a host of those that God would redeem and call to himself. Your faith in him and your trust in him has the potential of taking hold of nations and turning nations to Christ. And it began with Abraham. And also the Jews, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel wasn't, in a sense, a distinct people who alone 
were to receive the benefits and blessings of God. They were to be a case study of the blessings of God. They were to turn to God and trust in God and believe in God and God would bring his salvation to them and God would complete all of his promises to them and, and he will one day and he will fulfill all those things but them not alone. With them all the other nations that learn from the example and expression of God's faithfulness through them and God's salvation to Israel. They understand, look, if God can save those people, those stubborn people, those rebellious and sinful people, those people who turn again and again from the promises and blessing of God to seek after other gods, if God could throughout the history of the world pursue them to the end that he will bring them to himself, how much more will he bring all these other nations that lie in the darkness and fulfill a promise to them and give them blessings in like kind as he's given them. So when God says, I'll bless you and I'll bless the people, the nation of Israel through you, and then he says, and through you I'll bless all the nations of the earth, the blessings are the same kinds of blessings. They exemplify the relentless pursuit of God to bring him to himself, but they also demonstrate what's in God's heart. He has that same relentless pursuit for the nations. That's what Paul's argument is. God is pursuing these nations, and we are called to pursue them as well. Now, this is what I want to do this morning. I want to go back to those attitudes that the Jew had that he added to faith that actually countered faith and created an environment in which the very message they were entrusted with, this message of righteousness through faith in a God who gives his promise, and a blessing that would not only be to them, to all the nations, and actually cause them to constrain that promise and constrain that blessing and limit themselves from sending that blessing out to the nations. And I want to look at these three things. We might not be able to understand or put ourselves particularly in the mind of the Jew, but we need to understand what was going on in his mind. And then at the end, I think we can make a bit of an application to ourselves. So the first matter I want to look at, we're in verse 17 of Romans chapter 4. And then I, I kind of want to work our way from there back up. That's what I've been talking about here is basically what God has done for Abraham. Bringing Abraham to look into the stars and bringing Abraham to see the promise that he's giving him to bless him, to bring a nation up through him and through him actually bring up a multitude of nations through his faith. I want you to see that Paul is saying this Abraham that you think excludes you and makes you exclusive from other people is really, and this moment is the moment in which God was opening up a way for all the nations. And now Paul is going to counter their attitudes. And the first attitude they had was this idea that they had an assurance of salvation, not as a matter of faith, not as a matter of a faith that they could share to others, but as a matter of natural birth alone. As I said before, this is kind of a founder's mentality that was developing in the Jewish mindset. The idea that we come from Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. The idea that we descend from those people who are of the law. And so if you read this passage, you'll see that over and over again, Paul refers to those who declare or think of themselves as of the law. And there's two different ways in which that's true, that they thought themselves as of the law. But one of them was they were the people of the law, or they were the adherence to the law, or they were the ones who came from those from which the law was given. And in their minds, they're thinking back to that place where at the base of Mount Sinai, there were the people of Israel, and they received the Ten Commandments that God gave through Moses. They were the people of the law. Curiously, they don't consider what the people were doing when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and what he discovered the people doing. They just think now somehow they're sanctified and they're right with God because he gave the law to them. And so it's this idea of the special relationship that they have. And Paul answers this idea that they have a favored position in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. 
There it says, therefore, it is a faith, not of the law, a faith, that it might be according to grace, something that is freely given to all people, not on the basis of this, so that the promise might be to all the seed. All the seed are all those who can identify as being from the seed of faith that Abraham expressed when he believed God. That's all the nations, all the people, not only to those who are of the law. Not only to those who say, well, we have a lineage that goes back to Mount Sinai, and we're the people of the law. No, it's a faith. It's not just to you. It has nothing to do with your lineage. It's to all the seed who will believe as Abraham believed. Not only those who can chase their physical lineage back to those who first received the law, but also, it says here, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Do you see that? All the seed are, is all the seed who are of the faith of Abraham. That is, all those who can trace their spiritual lineage back to believing in a God who keeps all of his promises to bless. That's it. I just believe God. I believe his word is true. I believe what he said to me is true. And I trust him and believe in him that moment. I receive his salvation. And here's what it says of Abraham then. Who is the father of us all? Paul is writing to Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And he's saying he's the father of all of us. He's not the father of one group of individuals, but all who claim Abraham as their father simply by placing their faith in the God who gives promises as Abraham did and believe in the salvation that God has promised us through his son, Jesus Christ. All of us. That's his first response. Now here's the second one. They also claimed a distinct position or favor with God because they were of the people or nation who made it their business to keep all of the laws of God. In other words, they had their comfort in the sense that we've honed a special kind of legal, moral performance that gives us a sense of promise. So that's another way in which they speak of being of the law. They're not simply of the law by natural descent, but they're of the law because from that descent, they've kept up with the family business of following and obeying the laws. And this was another way in which the Jews saw the relationship to God. It was a relationship in which God will receive us because we're adherents to the things that he's teaching. And we're following them and we're studying them and we're observing them. And so Paul begins his answer to that idea in verse 13 of Romans 4. Here he says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world, that is of Abraham, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the observance of the law but through the righteousness of faith. It came through faith alone. Remember, when God spoke to Abraham and gave Abraham this promise, it was 430 years before the law even came along. And Abraham was declared righteous before he even knew what laws God wanted him to obey. If it was by the keeping of the law, then even Abraham, who you identify yourself, would not have been made righteous. You would have nullified a righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that began... Not with the people at the foot of Mount Sinai, but with Abraham, your father. So this is what his argument is. This is what he's teaching. In verse 14, he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect. The promise to who? Abraham. If it's by the law, and if it's only that following the law and being the people who come from the law and obey the law, then you voided the very faith that brought righteousness to Abraham. He's not even declared righteous, and where are you then? Besides, Paul is going to go on and say, this law was given for a different purpose than you think. It was given to reveal your sinfulness 
It was given to reveal to you that in your own powers and by your own efforts, you cannot live up to God's standard, but you are guilty before God. The law's effect was to bring everyone under sin and under its judgment so that everyone would have to find a right standing with God outside of the law. They would have to find a right standing of God and something God provides to them by faith alone, not by the following of the law. So what does the law do? Instead, what the law does is it reveals where you're broken and where you're sinning and where you're transgressing and you need to believe God for and trust God for. And so here's what he says in Romans 4, verses 15 and 16. Here's what the law really does. It doesn't save you. It doesn't bring you in a right standing with God. Just the opposite. The law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. There's no knowledge of your brokenness and your sinfulness. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. We could ask the question, is the law any good then? Well, yes, it's good. It's good because it, it shows me what I can't do. I can't produce in my own self the necessary righteousness that I need to be in the presence of God. I can't live a righteous life and so win by my own effort a right standing with God. It, it shows me not only what I can't do, but it shows me what I do. The brokenness and the sinfulness of my life. The law is like an x-ray machine that, that looks through your body and it reveals to you where the breaks are that need to be healed. Now listen, it's good to have an x-ray machine and be able to see these things. But you can't heal yourself with an x-ray machine. You can't bind yourself to an x-ray machine and make you better. It'll, it'll make you worse. After you see where you're broken, you'll need something else. Something else, some other remedy will have to be provided. They had taken the law, which was to reveal like an x-ray machine their brokenness, and they thought that same law would be the basis on which they'd be made right. And it isn't. It can't be made right through the law. It can only be made right through faith in a God who would provide a righteousness for them beyond their ability to keep the law, that God would provide for them. You know, I was thinking about this, how dangerous it is when you try to make something do what it's not meant to do. An x-ray machine is a good example. You know, when the x-ray machine came out, it was a wonderful thing. It was quite miraculous. People could look and see where people were sick. And, but then they got the notion that the x-ray machine could actually be, have healing virtues in itself. And so they would leave people under the x-ray machine thinking that it would heal them. And instead it gave them cancer and it destroyed them. And you know, one of the individuals was my father. He had a skin problem when he was a young man. And so it was told to him that if he got under an x-ray machine and he was just under the x-ray machine for extended period of times, it would bring healing to his skin. And so he would be under an x-ray machine. You know how it is now. It's a flash. And the people who are giving an x-ray have lead vest over themselves to keep from being exposed. Well, he was laying underneath an x-ray machine. It was going to make him better. Later on, they figured out it can't make you better. The doctor said, well, it's not a matter of if you get cancer, it's when you get cancer. And he got it. He destroyed him at some point in time. That's what the law will do. You think the law can make you right with God and you can follow it and you expose yourself to it and you try to live under it and you think you're good and you're right with God. It, oh, it's just, it's breaking down your bones. It's destroying you. It can't make you right. It can't make you right with God. It only can expose your sin. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is revealing. So 16b so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only of those who are of the law, but those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, he's getting back to that point. It's by faith alone. It's by faith alone. Here's the third problem that the Jews had. They claimed the right standing with God was because or by reason of the fact that they followed certain rites and certain ordinances and 
in this case the ordinance of circumcision. These religious expressions were to them a mark of their salvation. They became the mark that brought salvation to them. And Paul will point out to them that Abraham was declared righteous years before he was circumcised. Maybe 14 years. Some of the scribes themselves said it was probably 29 years. From the time God declared that he was righteous until he was circumcised. And remember the promise of justification is found in Romans 4, 5. That God, it says there, justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the individual who has performed some religious exercise. He doesn't justify the individual who's followed certain moral laws. He justifies the ungodly. Not the almost good enough. Not those who are trying really hard and need a little boost. Not those who have followed rituals, but the ungodly. And then on in that argument, Paul then introduces us to David, who is our example of the kind of individual who God justifies. And David is an adulterer, a premeditated adulterer. And David is a murderer, a premeditated murderer. And what do we say? There was in the Jewish law... No sacrifice, nothing that could be done for a person who engaged in a premeditated act of sin. When Nathan came to David and confronted him with his sin and David was willing to acknowledge it, maybe he said to Nathan, go back and find out, read the Bible, read the scriptures and find out what I can do, what sacrifice I can bring to remove this guilt from my life. And Nathan comes back and says, there's nothing. There's no sacrifice for you. There's nothing that God offers. So David cries out to God, I have nothing I can do. God, be merciful to me. God, cleanse me. God, wash me against you and you only have I sinned and you're just and your condemnation against me. But oh God, forgive me and cleanse me. He has no claim. He has no halter to even cling to at this moment in time. And he just cries out to God for mercy, believing that there's only one answer and it's that God might be merciful to him. And God is. And God washes him, and God forgives him, and God cleanses him. And Paul adds what David sings as a result of discovering this forgiveness that comes, ungodly as he was, that justifies him and cleanses him. Blessed, he quotes, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. It's in verse 7. And those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And that's a direct quote from the words of David, exalting in the forgiveness that had been brought to him that he could not acquire or do anything to gain for himself. So this is the example. How did David receive this blessedness of forgiveness? Did he receive it because he was circumcised? How did Abraham receive this blessedness of righteousness that was imputed to him? Did it come to him because he got circumcised? No. It happened 14 or 29 years after the moment in which Abraham was declared to be righteous. At what point did God say to Abraham that it was accounted to him as righteous? Let's read verses 10 and 11 again here of verse 4. At what point did God say to Abraham his faith was accounted as righteousness? Here's what Paul writes. How then was it accounted? Basically saying, when then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised. Now that kind of brings us to an idea of what, what was the value of Abraham's circumcision. It didn't bring him righteousness. It didn't make him righteous. It was simply a sign or a seal, a representation, an authentication 
of the righteousness that was his 14 years prior. God gave it as a testimony and as a freshener symbol of the righteousness that had already been poured out to him. And what you need to know is a sign and a symbol is a wonderful thing like the ring on your finger, but it's no replacement for what it's pointing to and what it represents. A man may love his wife. He might love his wife so much that he decides to get a tattoo of his wife on himself. I don't recommend it, by the way. I'm not recommending that you do that. And it represents her, and it might mean a lot to him because she means a lot to him, but it's a poor, poor replacement for herself. I have a lovely picture of my wife on my phone. When I'm traveling, I, I like to open my phone up over and over again, even when I don't have anything to do with it, just so I can see her picture. It's a wonderful thing. But, you know, if I was in the house one day and my wife was maybe giving me some instruction I didn't want to receive, or rebuking me for some things that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing, which your wives do, they're good conscience. And all of a sudden I turned away from her and I just looked at the picture on her phone. You know? <laughs> that would get me in trouble, right? It's not a good idea. The phone is a picture that's a representation of my love for her and my, my giving my life to her and the grace that God has poured out in my life and given me such a wonderful bride. But the, the picture is not a replacement for the bride, right? The nation of Israel had taken these rituals that God had given them and they'd made it a replacement in a sense, these symbols for the wonderful work that God was going to and wanted to do in their lives through faith and they were trusting in the symbols. And the symbols meant nothing without the reality. There is a correspondence between circumcision and baptism. In baptism, we come and we express the faith that we had in Jesus Christ. When we receive Christ as our Savior at that moment, we are, in a sense, accounted as having been immersed into the death of Jesus Christ. All that He did for us when He died on the cross for our sins is accounted to us. And in that moment, by faith, we are, in a sense, submersed into His death to sin. So it's all cared for in Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus Christ and our faith in Him, we come out of that death that we give ourselves to and the death He died for us in order to live in His resurrected power. And baptism is an expression of that spiritual reality. I am, as I go down to the water, expressing to everybody and giving testimony that my life has been immersed completely in the death of Jesus Christ for my sins and my faith is completely in Him having died fully for me and for all my sins. And in my faith in Jesus Christ, I've risen with Jesus Christ to His new life to live for Him and honor Him and glorify Him. And it's a beautiful expression, but it's meaningless if it doesn't speak to and represent the spiritual reality. It's meaningless unless I haven't put my faith in Jesus Christ and trusted Him and trusted He's covered for all my sins and believed that He's risen from the dead to bring to me all His life and promises. That's what the Jews had done. They'd taken a wonderful symbol and they'd made it and they'd put into it some meaning and some claim without it. Paul actually goes on to say, look at the chronology of all this. I want to explain to you something. Look at the chronology in which God saved and attributed righteousness to Abraham and then how long it took before God even gave him this act of circumcision. Why did God wait so long? I mean, when a person is baptized in the book of Acts, they were baptized right after they believed. They were to believe and then they were immediately to be baptized. But here, Abraham has believed God and God has not brought Abraham this wonderful seal or expression of circumcision as an expression of this righteousness that has come to him until 14 years later. Why did God wait? Why did God have Abraham do it immediately after his faith in God? Paul's going to explain that to us here. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul's going to explain it in this way. He's going to say the reason God did this was because if God did it immediately after Abraham's faith, 
you might think that it was the circumcision that made him righteous, and therefore you might think that all those nations who are uncircumcised can't be made righteous by God, that it comes by something other than faith. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. So, in other words, God delayed it in order that he might relate to all people that it's by faith alone that you're made righteous so that the people of Israel would be ready and willing to extend that message to all the nations and not somehow hold some right standing in themselves because they followed some religious exercise. And also, he says, the father of the circumcision to those who are not only circumcised, as if that's not really the big issue here, but who also walk like the uncircumcised who walk in faith. Now, oddly enough, he's saying the Gentiles are the example you're supposed to follow in. The people who believe in Jesus without receiving these religious rituals, who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abram had while still uncircumcised. You know what? You need the faith like uncircumcised people, he says. You need the faith of people who don't know all the rituals and don't know all the religious rites and don't know what they're supposed to They just simply believe. You need to be like that. And you can still be saved even though you've got these rituals, but only if you believe like the people who don't have the rituals and they just believe in him. Isn't that an odd twist? The Jews thought they were saved by all these rituals. And he flips it around and says, now nah, you're really going to have to follow the example of these uncircumcised Gentiles in order for you to know what faith is. Come to the church that way. We start following all these kinds of rituals. We have all these liturgies. We have all these trucks and these sacraments that we follow. We bolster ourselves around them and we draw meaning from them, wonderful meaning from them. But at some point in time, we rest in those things and it's like, nah, you, you got to kind of believe God like the man who's just in a ditch and he's desperate and he just reaches out and says, Jesus, save me and rescue me. You got to have faith like that guy who hasn't even pulled himself out of his misery, but he just trusts in Jesus. Otherwise, you don't have the right kind of faith. You don't have the saving faith that you need. That's what Paul's saying. That brings us to our application. The application here that Paul's making is this gospel is to be available to everyone. This gospel is to be available to all the nations. This gospel of faith, salvation by faith alone through the grace that God provides, the free gift that God provides, the free promises of blessing that God has made. This salvation, it must be, this must be the salvation we profess and we proclaim because only this salvation can go to all the nations and can be apprehended by all the people of the earth and we're missionaries. And that's our call and that's our duty so here's the application for ourselves. Who do we identify with here? Well, first, I think we have to kind of identify with those Jews who have patterned ourselves and around ourselves customs and behaviors and ideas, as good as they might be, that can become so important to us and so valued by us that they undermine our ability to proclaim the message to lost people, right? An example would be this. I'm exceedingly grateful for the heritage that I have. I'm exceedingly grateful for my mother and my father and how they raised us and also grateful for how miraculous God was in bringing into their lives tremendous men of God and women of God who actually were individuals who were particularly used of God to speak to whole generations. I've dropped this before. I'm a name dropper when it comes to this, that my mother and father were tutored and mentored by A.W. Tozer, who was one of the great great men of God in the last century. I'm very grateful for that. 
But you know, when I go overseas and I take the gospel to people in these remote places that have no reference of any significant past of Christian history, they've come out of darkness and Buddhism. And as I've told you, one of my friends told me that his father was the first Christian in his family and his grandfather was a cannibal. That's where they've come from. That's where they've emerged from. You know what I don't do? I don't go and tell them my wonderful story of my lineage and my heritage. Well, let me tell you the kinds of Christians that were in the back of my life that God has used to bless my life. Let me give to you that as the good news of how faithful God has been to me. And as a result, God can be faithful to you as well. It's not the gospel. I'm glad for those things, but how dangerous in my own life. Now listen, if I can't give that to them as any sense of hope, if that's not the way I'm going to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ, I better be careful that I'm not giving that to myself. I better be careful that I don't find myself saying, well, you know, life is pretty rough, but boy, do I have a good heritage. Boy, do my parents know some really great Christians that God was really faithful and the people they brought in their life, that's a real encouragement to me and that's something that I can stand on. And No, no, no. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see? Nothing else. And so I'm glad for those things. I'm also glad, by the way, for the kinds of rules that my parents put in our lives in order to, this could make you a Pharisee and did for a period of time in my own life, but I'm glad for these rules because these same laws eventually began to show me how sinful I was and how they applied in a sense the law of God and the way that we would live to seek to honor Him and obey Him. And so, now listen, I'm not saying this so that you can start taking notes, you know, and making comparisons, but, you know, in our home, we were not only not allowed to use curse words, we were not allowed to use words that you might use in place of curse words, you see? We weren't allowed to say, dang it, or darn it, or gosh, you see, those were just words you used in replacing bad words by mild words, but it's the same spirit. And we weren't allowed to go to movies, and we weren't allowed to go to dances, and we had certain rules that were put upon us that our parents used to give us the idea that we were to live a separate life and a distinct life that sought to honor God. Later on in life, I discovered that with all those rules... The real thing they revealed is that I couldn't honor God, that I was sinful and I was broken. But I'm thankful for some of those things because they shielded me off from certain things that I would have done otherwise. It's kind of like, I think of the rules like this. I've always thought of it like this. Well, it's kind of like my parents also didn't let me buy candied cigarettes at the candy store. They just didn't want me to kind of introduce myself in a slow way to the real thing, right? So that at some point in time I graduate from candy cigarettes to the menthol ones. So if I bought them, I couldn't let them know I bought them. I had to buy them and eat them all before I got home. But, you know, we weren't allowed to have those things. Well, I'm glad for that. But, you know, when I travel overseas and I'm meeting with a person who's coming out of spiritual darkness and out of moral darkness where there are few limitations to the kinds of depravity and depraved expressions in their lives, I don't bring them the good news of how I was raised. I don't bring them news of the kinds of standard my family had and my parents had and that's not good news. I bring them the news of the law of God for one reason, and it's not that law. I bring the law of God which says we're not to lie and we're not to steal and we're not to covet and we're not to commit adultery in our heart or murder in our heart. And I bring those laws, we're to worship God and God only, and I bring those laws only to show them 
that they've broken those laws. They can't be righteous through those laws, but there's one who's kept those laws completely, and it's Jesus Christ. And then he went and he suffered and died in their place for the sins they committed in order that he might cover them and pay for them and then give him his perfect righteousness. That's what I do. I don't give them some good news of my refined Christian opinions and standards of how we ought to live and how you ought to raise your children. It's not good news. Now listen, it's okay that you have those ideas and you try to apply those faithfully in your family, but it better not become the gospel that you rest in so that you are a respectable Christian. Because if it is, you won't have a gospel to give to lost and unsaved people. And they're all around you. And by the way, if that's not something that will translate to the man across the seas that you want to reach for Christ, I'll tell you, it won't translate to the man across your fence, your neighbor, that you want to win to Christ. Because many times, and particularly in our day and age, they're coming from the same thing. And if what you want to do is kind of reach them by the nostalgia of the way it was in the past, so we, you know, we just need to go back to the old ways, there's no gospel in that either. There's no gospel. It's too bad that we can't live in a day and age with a man's word as his pledge. And, well, that's nice to say, but the only reason you ought to talk about those things is to say, you know, it just shows you how, where our sin takes us and how broken and fallen we are and how much all of us need a righteousness that comes through Jesus alone by faith in Him. I could go on. I'm quite nostalgic also about the way I was raised to worship. I apply this one here. I like the way we do worship in our church. It reflects the way I was raised. The songs that we sing it. So my father started this church and I started it with him. And so we picked the style of worship that comported with the way we had learned to worship. It's kind of like this. That I like something that's simple and easy and clear and plain and loaded with wonderful truths. You know, I don't like to go to a place where they're dancing entirely different and I don't know the steps. Because if you don't know the steps, you're looking at your feet instead of the face of the one you want to dance before. So I like the simple registers, the simple liturgies that we experience that are uncomplicated where we sing to one another and we hear our voices and, and we sing these songs that are so rich and so deep. And, and for me, I like it too because as we sing those songs, it reminds me of times when I sang them before and the moment and what God was speaking to me and saying to me. And so we sing songs that I sang over the funerals of my loved ones. We sing songs that we sang when I was getting married to my wife and making my vows to her. And, and we have expressions of worship that remind me of the times in the past, the simple times in the past when God worked that language to speak to me again and again. So I like that. I like doing that. I think it's valuable and good. And I was just in Columbia and we went to visit a church and I was asked to speak in the church. When we arrived at the church, they were already well into their worship. And, and first, I couldn't enter the door of the church because the man that was standing at the door held a big flag in his hand and he was waving it back and forth to where we were singing it. And, and I'd have to figure out the rhythm of how he was waving it so I could, I could actually dart through the door before I got wrapped on the head by his flag. And when I got in there, everybody was waving flags and there was a person in the front dancing with a ribbon going around while they were singing. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, I'm not back in Boise right now. Then they asked me to preach. And it was my turn to preach. And you know what I didn't do? Let me give you the gospel of how we worship in my church. Let me share with you some quotes from the hymns we sing. And the nature, it's not the gospel. I gave them the gospel of a Savior who died on the cross for their sins to address every issue and need of their life and called them to Him to believe in Him alone by faith alone. And some responded to that message. 
gave their life to Christ. What's the warning for ourselves? Don't reach out to people in our community with the good news of the style of our worship. Don't say, you know, you, you might want to come to our church because our church does it a certain way that you probably really appreciate. Right? That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the gospel. Don't rest in those things. Don't make anything ultimately important in your life that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in him alone. Let everything else become an expression. God can bless you through those other things, but only to the extent that they always bring us back to the word of faith, the saving word of faith that we can bring to anyone, anywhere. And that's the call of God upon our lives. This is not a place where we come because we're just nostalgic for the good old days. What a lost message. What a weak message that would be. That would be like saying, you know, my father used to do it this way. That would be like saying, here's the way we were taught, and here's the law, and we're the people of the law. That would be like saying, well, we have these rites of circumcision and all these things, and we can't be missionaries with that message. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Bring us ever to the gospel of Jesus Christ, given for all men and all people and all places, a message of righteousness that they may have by simply repenting and believing in Him, turning to Him and putting their faith in Him. Oh God, let us adorn ourselves only with those things that speak of Jesus. Dear Lord, we thank You. We thank You for those graces those ways and those mannerisms that you have given to us uniquely using to bless our lives and uniquely expressive of embedding into our hearts the reality of your truths. Thank you for baptism. We thank you for our professions of faith. We thank you for the songs we sing to one another. We thank you for the godly men and women you've put in our lives let them only and ever point us to the Lord Jesus so that he alone is our message and our boast before all people. Give us, O oh God, constantly a message that we can speak to the man across the seas and the neighbor on the other side of our fence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.